It's good to sing at the top of our lungs about the greatness of God. It's good medicine. Turn to John chapter 17. This morning's message is on suffering. And I have to confess to you that I've suffered a little bit wrestling with why in the world we're considering suffering at a time of year that really you're supposed to be preaching kind of more chipper things. <laughs> I mean, really, I've done it. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing because the birth of Jesus is awesome. But for some reason, he has us in John chapter 17 as the eve of his cross. So in some way, he must be balancing us. I don't know. I just trust him. I've never seen a time in the life of our church when he hadn't given us exactly what we needed when we needed it. And sometimes that was as a time where you're thinking, that's a contrary message right now. We find out later that the timing was perfect. Dealing with suffering, I have to ask the question in our context, what even is suffering? I mean, there's the obvious forms. I read this week in the New York Times uh, that Christians in Iraq are fleeing to the north right now because um, Sunni Muslims are going after them. Apparently, 50-something Christians were killed this last week of some sort of raid. And Christians are fleeing, and the authorities are not protecting them. So the irony of that, you know, that there's the authorities there that are supposed to be doing the job protecting what is a legal form of worship in Iraq, and they're not. There's obvious suffering like that. Physical abuse at the hands of those opposed to the faith. There's social rejection. You know, you might become a social outcast in some way. There's being renounced by your family. That's a pretty common thing in Kazakhstan and other places in the world, but we know of some firsthand accounts in Kazakhstan. It might be hard for us to relate to some of those forms of suffering here in the States, but I think here in the States, if you're faithful and you're walking the true journey of faith, then there's a subtle suffering that comes from daily plotting. And, you know, you, don't, you may not bleed, but yet you might hurt. And likely you will hurt, and likely it will be difficult as you press forward plotting in the same direction in faith. Pressing forward toward an upward call, putting his ways over your own in little daily moments where there's no cheerleader, there's no coach, nobody's going to sing any songs about you, and nobody may even know about that decision that you made to put his ways above your own. There's a daily suffering that comes in letting people in your life and being accountable to other people and in holding them accountable. It's easier to just keep each other at arm's distance, glad hand each other, show up on Sunday morning, smile, ee, ding. It's a whole lot easier than actually being part of each other's lives. There's a subtle suffering that comes in that. There's a subtle suffering that comes in working through junk with other people. You know when somebody makes you mad? 
And you say, man, it's a whole lot easier. There are 90 other Christian churches in this community. I can throw a rock in any direction and find a new place where I can start over. There's a subtle suffering that comes in staying and working through it. There's a subtle suffering that comes from not bailing on folks when things get difficult, but in working through it because too much is at stake for us to bail on each other. There's a subtle suffering that comes from a man having to humble himself as he approaches another man and says, I'm struggling with porn, and I need you to hold me accountable. You're not bleeding, but there's a suffering that comes from that. And you know what? There's even a weird suffering in hearing it and having to work through that with a brother. There's a subtle suffering that comes from preparing weighty messages each week. I'm telling you, I felt it. I know the other elders feel it. There's a subtle suffering that comes from hearing it every week, right? I don't mean listening to it. I mean really hearing it. Subtle suffering comes from eating and drinking in moderation at a time of year when we typically gorge ourselves. Right? There's a subtle suffering in saying, no, that's enough. I've had enough. So we may not be bleeding for our faith, but I hope we're experiencing some form of suffering for our faith. It may be subtle, but I hope we're experiencing it. And this message this morning is going to be connecting to how to find joy in that suffering while we're under his protection. All the while, while we're under his sweet, good protection. Let's pray. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that your truth will be on display. I pray that you'll be enjoyed. I pray that you will guard us from chipper and land us, park us on true. Lord, I pray that, that just even for a little bit that you can remove the cares of the world and the hustle and the stress of this time of year and the distractions and that we can really focus that the Spirit will just inhabit these next few minutes. Pray that He'll open the eyes of our hearts to rich truths about you and this gospel, this journey that we're on, what it means, what it looks like, what to expect from it. And Lord, I pray that we'll find joy in that. Lord, I want to pray for another church in our community as well. I want to pray for Paul Blue and for Family Fellowship. Lord, we pray that you are enjoyed in in that people. I pray for Paul right now as he may be either preaching or preparing to preach, that you are readying him and stealing him and, in fact, preparing to remove him out of the way so that your message can speak clearly to a people that need to hear it. Lord, we cheer for your greatness among that people, family fellowship. And we pray that we'll be true brothers and sisters in faith as we walk alongside each other in the office, in the neighborhoods, as friends and family, that we can enjoy each other out loud, praying and hoping for the best in each other. Lord, we turn this time over to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
John, John chapter 17, read or prayed out loud on the eve of his cross. <clears throat> when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I'm praying for them, not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they're in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. This morning we're in our second sermon really considering his request for protection of his followers. On the eve of his cross, he prays for the protection of his followers. You start to get sort of the flavor and tone of it in verse 11. I'm no longer in the world. He's speaking about his cross as if it's already happened. It's almost like it's final. But they're in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, giving him a report, which you've given me. I guarded them, Father, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Hours before he submits to the suffering of the cross, he's praying for the protection of his followers. That's beautiful. 
right there. It sounds like the prayer of a pastor for his people. Father, keep them in your name. It sounds like the prayer of a parent for his or her child. Father, keep them in your name. It's the prayer of one acting out of love who would go to any measure to protect those who are his. That's the sort of Savior that we have. In verse 15, we have a more precise, definite picture of what he's requesting. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Don't take them out of this context. I'm not asking for that, Father. Don't make a mistake and think I'm asking for you to beam them up. I'm just asking that they'll be protected and kept from the evil one. What unfolded in the months and years after this prayer, if all we had was news, if we had no interpretation, all we had was news, like a news report from 2,000 years ago, what unfolded after this prayer would make you wonder why he didn't ask the Father to take them out of the world if he really loved them? For Peter, we believe, was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified. James was beheaded. Philip was hanged. Bartholomew was skinned alive and beheaded. Thomas was speared to death. James, the son of Alphaeus, was martyred in Egypt. Simon and Jude were martyred, I found specifically in Beirut, Lebanon. And they believe that Simon was hacked to death. Sound like protection? If you really connect the dots, you go, wait a second. Did he really love them? Why wouldn't he ask that they be removed from that? It makes you wonder if his prayer either wasn't answered or if it was answered with a big fat no because it seems at face value that the evil one has had his way with them. If you really look at the news, if that's all you've got. But us knowing that the prayer of a righteous man, the uber-righteous man, the God-man availeth much, we know that that prayer was not, not answered. We also know that it wasn't answered with a big fat no. We know that it was answered. So the way for us to process it is to realize that we need a redefined understanding of protection. We need to really examine and study closely what was he asking for. And these men, these specific men that he prayed for, and those who would believe in him through what these men shared, these messages that were about to be exposed, we can only reconcile what we see him asking for and what unfolds with a need to redefine protection as something other than, hear this, safety. Something other than safety. Protection and safety are apparently two very, very different things. For there was and there is, hear this people, nothing safe about following Christ. This morning we're going to look at four snapshots. I want to give you kind of a map of where we're going so you can follow the journey. We're going to look first in the Gospels to see a picture of what this... Prayer, prayer, not prayer. The prayer is expecting. Look in the Gospels. We're going to look in the Acts, Luke's version of the early church. We're going to look in the letters and look at some snapshots, some bullet snapshots. And then we're going to look back at the Acts and look at what happened to these specific men. 
Okay, so that's the plan for the morning. First, turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. It's on page 815 of your pew Bible, or if you have a uh, typical English Standard Version. Starting in verse 16. It says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep. You can look above and see that he's sending out his disciples. He's sending out the 12. The little heading up above, just right above verse 5, if you have the ESV, says he's sending out the 12 apostles, just so you know who he's, who he's talking to. The same guys that he's praying for, minus Judas, over in John 17. Okay, connect the dots. Behold, I'm sending you guys, the guys that I will pray for on the eve of my cross, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, just flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes." These guys are sent out by the prayer of the John 17 prayer as sheep. That right there will give you pause, hopefully. If you've ever studied sheep or you ever know anything about sheep at all, you realize that that alone is really worth stopping on, for there is nothing more defenseless as a sheep. Whenever we were preaching through John chapter 10, I had a kind of a study on, on sheep and shepherding and learning. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, trying to understand that. I learned a lot about sheep. Sheep are really pretty pitiful. I mean, they are. I found that a wise sheep is not one that's now somehow figured out wolves or somehow figured out some sort of moves where he could take out a wolf. He's not faster than the other ones. Where he can run from one. A wise sheep is one that's not somehow figured out what he's not supposed to eat and what he should eat. A wise sheep is one who's figured out that I got to stick close to the shepherd. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. I also learned that sheep, this is just like the most pitiful picture in the world about a sheep. A sheep can be what's called cast. It means that they eat too much of a certain food and they can lay down, take a little nap after they've eaten, and they can roll over onto their back. They're so full and they can't get up and they die. Isn't that the most hilarious thing in the world? And yet again, God's pictures, his images, his, his illustrations and his metaphors yet again just continue to deliver. Because I look at us and I go, man, we sure can get fat and lay on our backs and die. Spiritually overfed, sheep are pitiful. They need constant care and attention. Sheep need a shepherd 24 and 7 because they're stupid and they're really not able to protect themselves. They have no claws. They have no fangs. All they have is fur and four legs. And yet here he is, the prayer of the John 17 prayer, the one who prayed for their protection, sending them out as sheep. That alone will make you pause. 
So they're to be sent out as sheep. He's sending out the defenseless. Really, when you consider it, just in and of itself, you realize he's sending out dinner. He's sending out dinner because the next passage tells us he's sending them out, not just into some hopeful place where I hope that they find a nice meadow. He's sending them out into a place where he knows there are wolves. He's sending out sheep into a wolfy place, a context where they can and will be devoured because that's what wolves do. They eat sheep. That's what happens when sheep venture out where wolves live. Dinner happens. And sure enough... He says in this passage, you'll be delivered to the courts. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors. You'll be dragged before kings. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father will deliver child over to death. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the beauty is there's good reason. He's not some sort of masochist, sadistic sense of humor or something, enjoying seeing Sheep be eaten alive. There's a specific purpose for this, and it's in verse 18. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. All of this is for a purpose. You're going to be dragged to bear witness. You're going to be flogged to bear witness. You're going to be dragged, dragged, delivered, delivered. You're going to have children rise against you. You're going to be hated by all for my name's sake to bear witness before the Jews and before the Gentiles. The New American Standard has a, has a little reference there. Or a, uh, the way they treat it, I really enjoy. It says, as a testimony to the Jews and the Gentiles. You're going to be dragged, delivered, flogged as a testimony. You're going to be sent out into difficult places to bear witness in dark corners. You're going to be sent into wolfy places as walking meals. It's part of the design. It's part of the plan to the Jews and the Gentiles. He's purposefully deploying the helpless and the defenseless into an unsafe place, taking the message of another who also went out as a lamb for slaughter. They're taking out a message of a blessed other who will be like a sheep before shearers, silent. Submitting to injustice, submitting to wood and nails and suffering. So how could they come any other way? Considering the message that they bore, how could they come any other way? How could they show up in a tank? How could they show up with machine guns given the message that they bore? Jesus said in John chapter 12, he said, a seed must fall to the ground and die before it bears fruit. And he wasn't just talking about himself. He was talking about his followers. And that's what happens to these guys. Man, they die over and over again. Daily deaths. And then in their case, ultimately, most of them all but John martyred. But for a purpose, to bear Witness. In all this, though, they were protected. <laughs> it's crazy. They're not very safe, wouldn't you agree? But yet they're protected. Pick up in verse 24. Jesus says, A disciple's not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, 
How much more will they malign those of his household? So we can add being maligned to being delivered, flogged, dragged, dragged, delivered, delivered, rise against, hated, add being maligned because of your master. If they called the master, our Lord, a worker of Satan, how much more are they going to malign those of his household? So God's workers will be maligned and their work will be attributed to Satan. Has this ever happened to you? You may not realize this, but it's happened to us as a church. You may not realize this, but even in our context, likely the most highly saturated church environment, as far as I know, and I've heard, I I don't want to put this forth as gospel truth, that it's a, a record, for the most highly saturated church environment in the world. It wouldn't surprise me. 90 Christian churches serving 25,000 people with 75,000 in the surrounding area. It wouldn't surprise me that we've been maligned for preaching and believing doctrines of grace, for believing that a sovereign God foreknows and elects and ordains some for salvation. We've been maligned for that. It's crazy when you really look at it. We've been maligned, I found out this week, and I hope I can share this. I uh, found out from someone who is dear to me and always has been dear to me. That whenever we went to small groups a year and a half or so ago, that someone said, one step closer to a cult. Really? We're having small groups? Wow, we have to work hard to call that a work of Satan. But it doesn't, doesn't, it's not hard for people to come up with something like that. Man, here in our context, it happens to us as a church. You may not realize it, but it does. It happens to us. I heard a story a while back that someone was sort of maligning us because we had corporate worship. I hope that that's kind of odd to you because we had corporate worship. That's all we call church. It's just a different name. But they were maligning us because they, you know, they have corporate worship. Weird. I'm not saying they're attributing it to Satan, but I'm saying right here in our context that it happens. So sure enough, he's saying it's going to happen, and it does. If they were to bear his message, he's letting them know that they must illustrate his story. If they are to preach his cross, they must bear his cross. It doesn't look very safe to follow Christ if you really look at it. And I hope you realize, if you're considering this, that this really isn't very good news. Because I think most of us, myself included, often and usually are driven by feedback. I mean, our whole lives are driven by feedback. We're weaving through life, trying to figure out where the path of least resistance is. And if we face resistance, we make the decision, oh, we must be doing something wrong. Go a different direction. That's the way most of us operate, myself included. But if you live according to feedback and you face this list or any of this list, being delivered, being flogged, being dragged, being dragged, being delivered, being delivered, having children rise against you, being hated for your namesake, being maligned, if you face those things, you're going to go, man, i got to change my plan. We must be doing something wrong. Especially if they're going to attribute what we're doing to Satan. They're going to say that we're close to being a cult. We can't have small groups. If we're driven by feedback, 
You will frantically change or soften the message. You'll be jumping all over the place, doing the dance all over the place to try and figure out how to not aggravate somebody. If you're driven by feedback, you'll change or soften the message if you're delivered, flogged, dragged, hated, or maligned. But if you bear a true message, unfiltered, unsoftened, unmodified, with a loving heart, then guess what? You're going to experience what sheep experience in wolfy places. It's a guarantee, in the words of Justin Wilson. Guarantee. But we can be so fearful of disagreement that we don't engage clear truths, hoping to be vanilla and non-offensive. I wouldn't want to offend anybody. Jesus wouldn't. You need to go back and read the Gospels. Man, he's, people are trying to stone him. They crucified him. You might land on chipper during the holidays instead of deep and true and equipping if you're driven by feedback. And while this might be safe, this is not the protection he prayed for hours before submitting to the cross. It's a false safety encasing a weak, impotent, milquetoast message. He prayed for their protection from the evil one, not for safety. You see it in the Gospels. Let's look in Acts chapter 14. Beginning in verse 8, it's page 923 of your pew Bible. We're going to look at Paul as an example of one protected but not safe. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He's crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Awesome. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up, this, this would be the Lystrites, or I don't know what you call them from Lystra, the people from Lystra, lifted up their voice saying in Lyconian, that's the language there, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he's the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, I guess hearing that Zeus was in town, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, hustled over with a bunch of oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices to the crowd with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We're men too. Look, I made the same stuff you're made of, of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with good and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. It sounds like just a a crazy revival, right? So far, you're like, man, these guys are getting it done, boy. 
And in verse 19, but the Jews show up. The Jews show up. They come from Antioch and Iconium. And they having persuaded the crowds, the next words just shock me. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. I mean, moments earlier, they're trying to worship him. Do you see how fickle people are? I mean, the, the, the Listronians, or whatever we want to call them, they're no different from, we, from, from us. We're all over the map. I mean, one minute they're trying to worship him, and now they're stoning him, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. We're going to consider those words in just a minute. He rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 20, first of all, and it's just so easy to read these words. He rose up and entered the city. I mean, just... Make believe you're reading them, and let me do it vicariously. He rose up and entered the city. Easy to say. But how hard was it to do? Homeboy just been stoned with rocks. I mean, do we read that word so much that we don't know what that means? It means like somebody picking up a bunch of rocks and hitting you. Yesterday, I was working on a little project with, with Jeff Ott. We were building a sword little make-believe, like a little display sword for my son. And, and Jeff said, hey, he held up a nail, and I'm supposed to be hammering brass with a nail. Sounds like a recipe for disaster, disaster right there, a brass pipe. So he, he hit it right there. So I'm hitting it, and then, then he moves the, the nail away, and his thumb's right there, and I nail his thumb. And it just killed me. And he's like, oh, that's no big deal. You know, he's working with his hands all the time. But it just killed me. And the thought of one little hit with a hammer makes me cringe. But the thought of being hit with a bunch of rocks to the point where you're like dead. Oh, he's dead. Let's just drag his behind out of the city. It's easy to read. And then in verse 21, when they preached the gospel, they returned to Lystra. That's the place where he was stoned. They returned to Lystra, strengthening the souls of the disciples. They're so easy to read. I wonder if they were easy for Luke to write. But were they easy to live? If you climb into this story and imagine being Paul or Barnabas just for a few minutes, can you take in what the journey of faith was like for these men on whose shoulders we stand? Men made of the same stuff that you and I are made of. Hit them with a rock. Hit yourself with a rock. Let somebody else hit you. How bad that feels. It's going to make them feel just as bad. They're made of the same stuff. And here they are re-entering Lystra. And here they are continuing to preach the gospel, having been pummeled with rocks. Paul is stoned. He's dragged out of the city, thought dead. And then he goes back into the city and on to Derby which is 55 miles away. Anybody ever hiked 55 miles? Haven't been stoned? Man, I'm just scratching my head over this when you really take it in. And then they cruise back to Lystra, where he was pummeled, and then on to Iconium and Antioch. And what is he doing? He's strengthening the souls of the disciples with his teaching. And here's the content of his teaching. Part one, continue in the faith, keep plotting. 
What else you got, Paul? Uh, that's it. Continue in the faith. Keep plotting in the same direction. And secondly, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He was a walking illustration of that. It's not safety, but it's protection. What Jesus prayed for on the eve of his cross was not that his disciples and his followers would be safe because there's nothing faith or safe about following Christ at all. <clears throat> John Bunyan is a guy that I constantly go back to. We are considering him as a staff because we're reading through a book called Pilgrim's Progress as a staff. I hope some of you have been inspired to read Pilgrim's Progress through the many references that we make to this book and to John Bunyan. He was a Puritan preacher in the 1600s. He was a man put in prison for preaching. And John Bunyan was an expert, an expert on difficulty and suffering. Here's what he says in this book in chapter 7. Christian is on this journey of faith, and here's what he says. It's firsthand. So Christian says, I then saw that they all went on until they came to the foot of the hill called Difficulty. At the bottom of the hill was a spring, and two other paths were there at that place beside the one that came straight from the gate. There at the bottom of the hill, one path turned to the left hand, and the other turned to the right. So there are multiple paths at this big hill. But the narrow pathway led right up the hill. And the name of the way up the side of that hill is called difficulty. Christian then, it's not firsthand actually, it's secondhand. Or thirdhand, I don't know. Christian then went on to the spring and drank from it to refresh himself, after which he began to go up the hill. Listen to what Christian says as he's climbing the hill of difficulty. He says, this hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not offend me, for I perceive the way to life lies here. I wonder if he was thinking, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. For the way of life lies here. Come pluck up heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult the right way to go than wrong though easy where the end is woe. George Whitfield said of Pilgrim's Progress, he said it smells of the prison for he wrote it from the prison. This man was imprisoned for preaching and he knew the hill of difficulty well. All he had to do to get out of prison was say, I won't preach anymore. There was one point when he's in prison and the whole, the whole conflict had kind of died down some. And they're like, hey, maybe we should do something with John Bunyan. So they pull him out. The authorities pull him out. They questioned him. And he says this to him. He says, they were going to let him out. He says, if you release me today, I will preach tomorrow. <laughs> if you release me today, I will preach Tomorrow, they said of John Bunyan, people said of John Bunyan, this man, they said he was a witch. They called him a Jesuit and a highwayman. A highwayman is a thief. Maligned. He was imprisoned from 1660 to 1672 and then imprisoned again in 1675. He wove shoelaces to support his family. All he had in his cell were two books, Fox's Books of Book of Martyr, Martyrs and the Bible. 
And he had a violin that he made out of tin. And he had a flute that he made from a chair leg. That's all he had. Oh, and he had pen and paper. Thank God. He had pen and paper. He said this about his time in prison. He said, The parting with my wife and poor children hath often been to me in this place as the pulling of flesh from my bones. And that not only because I'm somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child. He mostly ached for this daughter. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. But John Bunyan wasn't driven by safety. Jesus didn't ask for it, and John didn't get it. Paul didn't get it, but they were protected from the evil one. This journey is not safe. It's protected, but it's far from safe. Here are the snapshots from the letters. I'm going to read to you three, and I'll tell you where the references are. You can jot them down. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, imprisoned, maligned, mistreated, hungry, poor, and expert on suffering, writes to Roman believers who also suffer under the heavy hand of Rome. He tells them, suffering is so much a part of the journey of faith that it's a mark of being one of his children. It's like a name tag. Sufferer. It's a mark of one of his children. Being safe is not a mark. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you, Philippians, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Granted to suffer. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul is encouraging the Philippians who are engaged in the same conflict with an unbelieving world. In this case, the Roman Empire. With the notion that suffering is granted. Safety's not the carrot. Suffering is the carrot. Suffering is a blessing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. We sent Timothy to encourage you that you wouldn't be moved by these afflictions. The word move there in the original language means wagged. You imagine being a, a, a passenger on a dog's old long tail, being just... He's saying, I'm sending Timothy so that he can exhort you in your faith so that you won't be wagged around like a dog's tail by afflictions. Because guess what, Thessalonians? We are destined for this. Not safety. You're destined for affliction. 
It's the mark of a believer. It is granted to us. We are destined for affliction. The gospels show it. The acts shows it. And the letters are saturated with it. Saturated. Remember last week, I shared with you the treasure that I found in John chapter 17 that I now understand why he prayed the prayer out loud. He didn't have to. He could have prayed the prayer. It would have been uber effectual, just knowing that he's a righteous man, praying what he prayed. But he prayed it out loud for a purpose. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That'd be like saying, guys, I'm explaining to you while I'm praying, why I'm praying this prayer out loud. Because it's joy training. Part of me wonders if while he's praying this prayer, that he's not peeking and looking at him to see, are they getting it? Are they paying attention and realizing this is joy instruction, the content of what I'm praying here? Somehow, I'm hoping, Jesus, I, I bet he's saying, I'm hoping that they know that this journey isn't safe. And here 2,000 years later, I'm saying the same thing. I'm hoping that you know that this journey isn't safe. And somehow, just in the knowing, you find a joy that will change your perspective on so many things. On so many things. Knowing it gives you a different lens to interpret every context. Now, where we're going to end this morning is in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 5, excuse me. I told you that we were going to look in the Gospels, look in the Acts, look in the letters, and we were going to end with a snapshot of what happened to these men who heard this out loud joy instruction prayer only approximately three months later. I mean, three months after the cross. Three months after this prayer is prayed in John chapter 17. About three months later, after these guys run like chickens when Christ is arrested, denying Christ before maiden girls, eek, those same guys. Let's watch what happens to these guys in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of these apostles. This is the same dudes that he prayed for in John chapter 17, about three months later. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, to the Lord, multitudes of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter, remember the chicken of Passover, came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Sounds like a great revival so far. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. 
And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, this same high priest that questioned our Lord three months earlier. He questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter, the former chicken of Passover, the bold preacher of Pentecost, and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are the witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. These guys are speaking truth, whatever the cost. And when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But then one of the Pharisees, a man named Gamaliel, stepped up, went to bat for him, sort of kept him from dying that day. And they took his advice and in verse The second part of verse 39 says, They took his advice and when they had called in the apostles, the same men that... Jesus prayed for on the, on the eve of his cross. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. I thought about how this story could have gone from that point. Reeling from their beating, they quietly left the council and hunkered down in a cave. I mean, imagine at current day, we have missionaries on the field who are beaten for sharing their faith. We're thinking, find a cave. Please, quick. Get away from that danger. Word was sent to their family members while others tended to their wounds. They held grave prayer vigils and began to figure out how they could share the good news of Christ without being so offensive. They decided teaching on sin and death is a downer. That calling people to repentance and wholehearted cross-bearing faith was a bit much. So they spent time praying about how they might befriend the council members and win their hearts. They decided instead of preaching on sin and death and eternity and guilt and grace, they'd preach instead on various needs that others might have. They'd instead try to make others feel better about themselves, to have a better self-image. Not wanting to offend, they opted rather to give people a positive message. That's how it could have gone, but it didn't go that way. In verse 41, it says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ 
After they're arrested and beaten, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they're counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They are celebrating the hill of difficulty. They are enjoying being lambs in wolfy places. And that's suffering. Rather than crippling or modifying their message, rather than softening it, gave wings to it as they taught in the temple and from house to house. This, friends, is joy instruction in motion. On the eve of his cross, he said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I don't ask that you spare them from being delivered, flogged, dragged before governors, dragged before kings, delivered brother to brother, delivered by father, delivered by child, hated by all, maligned by many, mocked by family members for their faith. Lord, please, Father, don't spare them from being mocked for their faith. Don't spare them from being treated like they're stupid by family members at Christmas. Please let them experience that as they bear my message. Please don't spare them from being made fun of by workmates for their trust in Christ. Please don't protect them from that. Please don't keep them from being hated by others for speaking and being true. Please don't spare them of the subtle suffering of daily plotting. But keep them from the evil one as they bear witness in those dark corners. Please don't keep them safe. Rather, protect them as they bear my dangerous message. Let's pray. God, I pray that engaging a message like this at an unlikely time I pray that through the work of the Holy Spirit that it will be a stark message for us. I pray that it will be one that equips us to joyfully be salty and bright and aromatic even with family over Christmas. Even with family that may think that we're stupid for loving Jesus. Even with family that may think that we're a mockery for being so headlong engaged with the people of God. Lord, I pray that a message like this will equip us to be salty and bright and aromatic in cubicles where we may be surrounded by people that think that we're a joke for loving Jesus. Lord, I pray that messages like this will keep us salty and bright and aromatic joyfully in a context where we may be thought of as cultish, where we have corporate worship, where we see the doctrines of grace and your work of electing some for salvation as your glory. Lord, we count it a privilege and we rejoice with the apostles. We rejoice with Paul and Barnabas in the hill of difficulty. We rejoice with John Bunyan We rejoice with present-day believers all over this world that are facing persecution right now. We rejoice in their sufferings. And Lord, we pray that you not keep them safe, 
any more than you pray that you would keep us safe, but keep us protected from the evil one as we bear your name in dark, difficult places for your glory. Keep us true. Thank you for a good word, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for not adjusting the message. Week after week, you bring truth, not your version of it. And I'm thankful for it. Turn to Psalm chapter 2. Psalms like this make sense when we understand the life we're called to, which has been very clearly shown to us this morning. We're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. And I want to say a few things before we partake to make sure we understand what we're taking. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. It sounds like what happened in Acts. Against the Lord and against his anointed. Against his protected, even saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Burst and cast. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If we don't understand the life we're called to, that psalm doesn't even make sense. Why do I need refuge? Why do I need a king on a high hill? Why do I need him doing anything for me if it was done in Christ? I was reading with my daughter yesterday in in the beginning of Matthew, and he came to save us from our sins, not our suffering. There's a difference between the two. And some try to preach the other is the gospel, and it's not. I was reminded this morning in the song that they played, in fact, put the lyrics up there to that bids me come and die part. They'll be up momentarily. Um, this, uh, those words, I remember the first time I led worship this morning. I'm thankful the Lord called it to memory. Sometimes you have shameful moments that the Lord doesn't let you forget so that they can maybe be a teaching moment for someone later. So we get to do that publicly this morning. This, uh, these lyrics bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. The first time I led that, uh, in, led that song in corporate worship, I believe the year was 1998. Someone added a chorus to it, and it was new again. And um, I remember I was leading worship in a very fancy place with a very nice setup, and there wasn't suffering was not even on the table really. I hadn't heard a message on it maybe ever, and. Uh, 
And I remember I said, I was leading worship. I'm the guy with the microphone, okay? And I said, bids me come and die. And I stopped. I stopped the band. And I told the guy running the PowerPoint, that's a uh, program we used to use. Uh, I told the guy running PowerPoint, I said, we have a typo. Bids me come and die. It's dine with an N. I was the guy with the microphone, and I said, it's bid me come and dine, find that I may truly live, we eat, we feast, sustenance, live life. Die doesn't make sense. I was offended by suffering. When you hear Christians say, I'll climb the hill for I am not offended by difficulty, I was offended by difficulty, and because of it, I said, stop preaching the gospel. That's offensive. You really want all these people to sing, bids me come and die? That's not happy. That's offensive. They're not going to come back next week if we do that. It's dine. And then I was tuned up afterwards by a much older, wiser man. Praise the Lord. Remember in Matthew 10, it says, A servant is not greater than his master. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of this household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who destroys both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. That's a comfort to me. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. As we take of this supper, he says, do this in remembrance of me. True remembrance is a form of acknowledging our Savior. Or, as we've heard it, bear witness this morning. So my encouragement as we take this is remember, acknowledge, and bear witness. And know that as we acknowledge, it says here that he's acknowledging us before the Father. Like That's actually happening. That should blow our minds especially when we make so many mistakes along the way. Grace is needed, and grace is abundant. We celebrate it as we take the supper week after week. This is what we did last week, and this is what we're going to do next week because we're called to this plotting faithfully for his glory. Y'all pray with me. Lord, as we partake of this thing that you have called us to do in remembrance of you, I pray that our hearts would be right. I pray that we would not take the supper wrongly. Lord, I know that it's, it seems like only just a few short years ago that I was offended by the gospel because the gospel said, you're going to suffer. It bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. And Lord, my prayer is that if any of us are here and offended by that, 
that we would be sobered up by the truth that has been preached this morning. That, that our minds would not be intoxicated with thoughts of some life of carefree, suffer-free existence, but that we would be sobered up by the truth as the truth works its way by the work of the Spirit in the hearts and minds of men and women sitting here right now. Lord, if that is our place, if any of us are there, I pray that as we sing and as we partake, that we would in fact be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we could understand the life we are called to live for your glory. We're thankful for a finished work outside of us, and we celebrate it, and we remember it with the supper this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember, acknowledge, and bear witness, take and drink. Let's pray. Lord, you're unspeakably good. Many of us make mistakes in thinking that we're not loved because of some situation we're facing. But we are loved this morning and reminded as we take the supper that we are loved by a perfect God whose love is lacking in nothing. Your love is not lacking in any area whatsoever. And you are with us and you are present in every circumstance. You're our ever-present help in troubles that oftentimes are your design. You are not distant. You're not aloof. You're not disconnected. You are incredibly active in the lives of your children. And we are immensely blessed. Lord, as we continue in worship, I pray that it would be wholehearted. Whether it's our prayers, whether it's the uh, words that we sing, whether it's our giving and response, whatever it is, um, there's many responses um, to our God of absolute infinite worth. And I pray that each of them would be wholehearted. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For that last song, just the first, first few slides there. Jesus paid it all. They're visual impaired folks here, so I'm reading it on purpose. Jesus paid it all, and this is hard to believe. Why he'd ever love a wretched worm like me? Now, I don't care how you package it. You can't make that a desirable message to the natural mind. And the natural mind says, I ain't no worm. What are you talking about? I'm better than that guy next door. I'm better than that guy I work with. I'm no worm. I'm better than that tax collector over there praying. That's the natural man. Says, no, nah, no, nah, no worm. What's wrong with you? That's a weird message. That's the scandal of the gospel. Keep going. For I'm chief of sinners, and this I understand. I deserve the fullness of the greatest death. That's the foundation of the gospel. That's the backdrop of the good news. If you give the good news without that backdrop, it's just news. You give it with the backdrop, you take it all in, Take in the, the peripheral vision of the backdrop along with the focus of the good news. And then you go, oh, that's a scandal. I'll sing at the top of my lungs over that. I'll, I, how could I keep but speak in Christ? It burns within me if I keep it in. Man, that's worship right there. Man, what a scandalous gospel we're on, journey we're on. I have a family that I want to present. Uh, Brad Cardwell is going to come up in a second and present somebody as well. But y'all come on up, Williams. Tommy and Rebecca.
And they have Isaiah is the oldest. Isaiah is the oldest, right? Okay, and Trinity is in the middle. And Michael is the youngest. Uh, we've had a chance to get to know this family through small group. And um, they have, uh, I guess I could just kind of summarize to say that these guys have really, I, I feel like if there is such thing as a textbook way to handle church membership, I would say that the way they've handled it has, has really been ideal. It's been over a period of a few months. They've gotten a, a, a feel for who we are as a people. They've gotten a feel for what our message is. And when I say message, I mean over the course of time, not a single snapshot. You know, the reality is you can step into a church and maybe hear a message on the background. Remember I just said, the background, a wretched worm like me, you might step into a church on a given morning and hear, man, that's all these guys got, just talking about how crummy they all are. Because you didn't hear the, the, the message. You heard just about the background. Or you might hear just the foreground and say, those guys never preach about sin. But they've walked with us for a period of time and they've heard our message and said, man, we agree and, and, and walk, want to walk in this. And we want to make this public. We want to be part of this people. We've talked together and uh, they've taken a look at our covenant and said, man, yeah, I'm tracking. We're, we're on board. And they want to make this public, this commitment to this body um, to journey together. I guess what they're doing, given our message this morning, is they're saying we want to plod with y'all and suffer with y'all. Subtly, maybe, but suffer. So that's pretty cool. After we dismiss, um, after Brad introduces someone else, I'd like for you all, after we dismiss, to come up and meet these families. God is good and gracious to bring us families to, be, to journey with us, to suffer with us, to plot with us. And um, let's enjoy them together. I'll turn it over to Brad. Let's try that. That better? Renee, where are you? Come on up here. Um, Renee Finner is... Um, 22-year-old college student who uh, Renee thought she was coming to be an intern at I Go Global where I work this summer, and then she was going to come and hang out with the Simmons family, and she uh, knew them previously and um, turned into something a little different. Uh, Renee truly is the fruit that is hanging from the tree of Jeff and Pam's ministry in Jordan. And um, what has happened over the course of the last few months as she's lived with them, gotten a job here, is that she has felt called to be a part of this people and be sent and eldered and overseen and taught here. Uh, the preached word has done that and her time engaging small group, much like the Williams. Uh, she's come and been here and said, this is my people. It doesn't make sense. Uh, Renee's from Houston. And while uh, Greenville doesn't make a whole lot of sense, um, she has decided to finish school online, uh, stay at her job slash ministry at Starbucks, and engage here and be here among these people. Um, so while a lot of things don't make sense or, un, or seem foolish or unlikely, uh, the people of God doesn't and the preached gospel doesn't to her. And so she's saying, I want to be here among these people. Um, we have seen Renee be very faithful with many things. And so we're glad you're here, Renee. Um, I want to say one thing real quickly. I want to be careful how I say it. I think something is happening right under our nose at Cross Point. There are a handful of families, and I'm not going to go down the list because I'd miss somebody, but um, we have a handful of families who certainly all, everybody who comes to Cross Point to join here comes here because God ordained it and God has led them. I'm not saying that 
there's a certain amount of people who don't, but there is this avenue of coming to Cross Point that's not necessarily a job change, or maybe they got a job at L3, or they're going to teach here. Um, maybe they don't want, you know, there's many reasons why somebody would, would come here and plant here and be here. But there are a handful of families that right now under our nose, around us, joining much like Renee is, that are saying, I want to be here because of this people first. And if that makes you kind of go, oh, man, that's really cool. That's really neat. That's really awesome. And I really hope that the elders and deacons do a good job with that. <laughs> uh, listen, you need to hear, maybe hopefully be a little bit sobered and scared by the fact that God is stewarding you and me with folks like Renee who are coming here to say, I want to be a part of this people first, and then job, school, ministry, will, missions, whatever, will, will flow from that, from this people. So I hope you're, you think that's cool because it is, but I hope you know you are, God seems to be giving us and asking us to steward people and families who say, I want to be a part of this people, and that's happening, and it's, I think there's more coming. So, uh, whatever that's worth, please be sober with me about that and be ready and pray that this gospel that you've heard preached this morning is exactly what God is calling these families and people here to do in Hunt County. I know it's the craziest thing in here, but God's using the unlikely and it's going to be neat and scary and fun and hard. So that's what he's doing under our nose. You'll hear hopefully more about that in the coming months and days. So we're glad to have you families. I'm going to pray. Y'all come up and meet these folks. Father, thank you for this day, for the gospel that doesn't change. And thank you for Ben's faithfulness to unpack and open up a new door to see, a new window to see into this gospel and the truths that don't change. And I pray, God, that you would keep us faithful with the things you're putting right in front of us uh, today that we'd be faithful with this message. And um, we're thankful that um, this message that we preach is completed and it's done. And we're thankful for everybody who has led us to you today. We're thankful for the supper and what it means and what it does to us and what it does for us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Y'all dismissed.